Welcome to Primity, where we find simple techniques to help address modern problems for our primitive bodies. Before we begin today's episode, I wanted to add some addendums to our previous episode concerning creatine. We discussed dosing for creatine, but we didn't talk about dosing for creatine. Specifically, in the loading phase, we said how the data pointed to approximately 0.3 grams creatine per kilogram of body weight per day. What we didn't say was how much creatine is okay to have in a sitting. In this case, if yours truly is 185 pounds, that's just about 84 kilograms. So with 0.3 grams per kilogram, that would mean I would need to consume 25 grams of creatine per day if I were in the loading phase. Now, consuming large amounts of creatine at once has been shown to create gastric distress. As such, almost all the experiments we found supplementing with creatine never exceeded 5 grams per dose. That means in my case, I would need to take 5 doses of creatine of 5 grams throughout the day. That does not that does make it slightly annoying. However, since they typically taste pretty good, it's not exactly a hard sell. Please do yourself a favor and don't consume 25 grams of creatine in one fell swoop. I and your stomach will thank you. Secondly, because creatine, as we established, does cause cells to hold on to water, what this can mean is that if you are not adequately hydrated, the body can reappropriate water from elsewhere. And by that, I mean the data shows that typically individuals in the loading phase are more prone to cramping and charley horses, both of which are commonly symptoms of being dehydrated. So, all the more reason to make sure you're hitting your electrolytes, doing your soft tissue work, and warming up appropriately before engaging in any strenuous activity during the loading phase of creatine. With that, I finish my addendums and we return to our original episode topic. Humans have made marvelous inventions that have proved brilliantly successful and have also backfired in spectacular and often unforeseeable ways. Bottled water helps provide clean sources of drinking water to areas previously inaccessible and can save lives in times of disaster and has played a large role in the climate trash issue and now microplastics crisis across the globe. Cars and planes have revolutionized our economies and our ability to travel and are one of the largest contributors to climate change. And for our purposes today, one of the hot items I argue that should make that list is shoes. Shoes have become so fascinatingly over-engineered that we've inadvertently engineered new problems for ourselves because of the shoes that we wear. And in spite of all my climate references, I am not referring to the waste that shoes contribute to. No, I'm talking more about the biomechanical problems that shoes have created. Today, we're going to discuss a great deal about our footwear. How have shoes changed the way we move? Is there a proper shoe one should wear? Are there things we can do to potentially offset or maybe even correct what our shoes do to us? We look to science. In case you're new, my name is Andrew Pafford, and I'm a health and wellness professional with over a decade of experience helping Olympic-level athletes, desk jockeys, and seniors achieving their goals and improving their quality of life. Our goal with Primity is to find simple, at-home techniques and strategies rooted in science to help you with your health-related goals. Our information is meant to be descriptive, not prescriptive. We'll always recommend that you talk to your appropriate health professional before making serious changes to your routine. 
Shoes are not new. Every culture has a long history with footwear designed to protect our feet from harsh terrain. Early cultures even had something as primitive as a strip of leather slapped to the bottom of your foot to help protect it, such as a Roman sandal. Shoes were also designed with specific functions in mind, such as dancing, horseback riding, hiking, etc. But as our technology improved, so too did our ability to design shoes and construct them using different materials. Foam was able to provide more shock absorption, so less effort was needed from us to absorb that shock. Art supports helped keep the muscles in our feet from getting tired, from working too much, leading to needing less rest. Then, of course, that is to say nothing of fashion and its ceaseless endeavor to find ways to express oneself through intricate and unique designs. At the heart of our machinations, though, it's easy to forget that our feet are quite capable of doing things for themselves. When walking on tough terrain for a time, we develop calluses to harden the skin and protect our feet. The muscles in our feet demand effort in order to stay strong, lest they succumb to atrophy. Our calves and ankles are the most mechanically advantageous lever in our body. For you physics nerds, it's the only class 2 lever, which means it's designed to do work. And yet, a funny thing happens when shoes are introduced. Our gait patterns change, our feet become weaker, and as we age, our balance deteriorates. Now, while these seem like bold claims to blame on something so innocuous as a piece of rubber and foam, we're going to take a moment to explore the mechanisms through which these conditions can happen, and what, if anything, we can do to prevent it, or potentially correct it. Let's talk gait for a moment, or rather, our walking and running mechanics. If you have the luxury of listening and getting up to test this, then be my guest and try. We're going to take a spin with walking. When we walk, it is energetically more efficient to walk with what we would call a heel strike. So as you take a step, you'll notice that your lead foot will reach out and the heel will strike the ground first before the rest of the foot makes contact. Now, when you heel strike, your lead leg becomes completely locked out. This way, when you transfer your weight onto the lead leg, your body has to engage in very little to support your mass. Think of a pole vaulter's pole. There are no gears, pulleys, motors, any moving pieces, or anything doing work in that pole when a pole vaulter uses it to launch themselves into the air. Much does our leg work this way when performing a heel strike. However, this won't fly without your shoes. I won't encourage you to try this part because it could be painful, but if you do, do so at your own risk. Imagine now taking your shoes off and walking around on the pavement outside. Visualize your heel banging into the ground with every step you take. How long do you think you would go before feeling very uncomfortable, or possibly even hurt, like a stone bruise? You wouldn't need to go far. This is because we aren't designed to walk this way. We were designed to perform more of what you would call a midfoot, forefoot strike. Midfoot or forefoot strike keeps the ankle, knee, and hip in an unlocked position upon striking the ground. So when you step and transfer your load onto that lead leg, those three joints naturally bend to help absorb the shock, so no one single bone or muscle is doing all the work. The effort and shock is shared evenly throughout the limb and its musculature. Because your muscles are working, this takes energy. 
So earlier with the heel strike, I said it was energetically more efficient, but not biomechanically more efficient. To frame it more appropriately, it is the lazier way to walk. Hopefully that description gives you a bit more of the negative connotation that it should entail. Not sure if this makes sense? Well, in this particular instance, seeing should be believing. I encourage you to do a quick search on the internet for videos of sprinting in slow motion. Chances are, you'll find some footage from the Olympics, and if the video shot is close enough to the feet of the athlete, you can clearly see where some of the world's fastest are running and their forefoot is hitting the ground first. Not a single one of them is heel striking. Not only would heel striking be incredibly painful at those speeds, but it's also a horrible way to generate power, since all of the joints would be locked out. The metaphor I've heard for heel striking while running is like trying to drive while alternating between slamming on the brakes and then punching the accelerator. Brake, gas, brake, gas. We even have some nascent understanding of this that comes out in our language, in our idioms. We want to describe someone who's being stubborn or won't budge, we say, digging in our heels, as we equate to being in our heels to being more stationary, while being light on our toes is typically associated with agility and movement. And sure, we're not all track and field athletes who sprint down our driveway to check the mail each day. However, the gait mechanic principles are still the same for walking, even if they aren't as exaggerated as they are in running. One still drives through the balls of the feet and the rear foot for push-off. There's still thoracic counter-rotation and subtle arm swing to allow for a longer stride, just like in running. And they both need appropriate shock absorption when making contact with the ground. Now, this is one argument about how shoes have changed our natural walking and running mechanics. Technique aside, the other argument for shoes is supposed to be that they protect our feet. Well, a quite fascinating study done in Kenya showed something quite different. 140 children in Kenya were divided into two groups, habitually barefoot and habitually shod, or with shoes on. The results were quite surprising. The barefoot children overall had more than six degrees greater range of motion in their feet and ankles than those wearing shoes. Barefoot group had slightly stronger muscle measures in foot strength, but the most illuminating data from the study were the last two points. The barefoot group had a lower limb injury prevalence of only 8%, while those who were shod had a 61% rate over the course of the year that the study was done. Finally, the children in the barefoot group engaged in more physical activity than the children with shoes. While socioeconomic factors may have played a role, for example, those who couldn't afford shoes also couldn't afford to have televisions and sit on their butt all day, being barefoot was not a deterrent to being physically active, as one might presume. So even with increased activity and essentially more opportunity for injury, the inverse was true and significantly so. Barefoot activity is not just beneficial for younger populations, but even older populations, especially those with a history of falling. The bottoms of our feet actually contain a fair amount of nerve endings that help tell us when we shift our weight. Seven to 8,000 nerve endings approximately. If the ground underneath of you is soft, however, this dulls some of that activation in the foot, making it harder to detect balance shifts. 
This is why much of balance training done in older individuals utilizes a foam pad to stand on. Not only does this make the ground shift under you more because of its instability, but because the pressure sensors are also not activated as easily, the body then has to rely more on vision, inner ear, and proprioceptors to maintain the balance. You can almost equate this to like when people blindfold themselves in order to taste their food better. You take away one sense to try to help heighten the sense of another. In this case, they take away the pressure sense away in the feet to help emphasize the stretch sensors that trigger the proprioceptors in the ankle, or to help emphasize the inner ear to become more tuned to one's position in space. In this regard, wearing a shoe with a thick sole is akin to strapping a balance pad to the bottom of your foot. Or, going back to the food metaphor, wearing that blindfold to enhance the taste of your food, only now you have to wear that blindfold out of the restaurant and you're not allowed to take it off. Without that pressure sensor feedback in your feet, you now have deprived yourself of one of the systems that was put in place to help you maintain balance, effectively putting the shoe wearer now under a balance handicap. And the thicker the shoe, the thicker the rubber, the more of a handicap and the more unstable of a pad you're now walking around on. With that in mind, one experiment sought to see if the type of shoe would have an effect on an older population that already had a history with falls. And indeed, minimal shoes and being barefoot improved postural stability when compared to that of conventional shoes. This was not only observed using pressure plates to measure the center of mass of participants while they performed tasks, but the participants themselves reported feeling more stable. Further, our feet are always changing throughout our life. Even in adults, studies that compare individuals who are barefoot versus those who are habitually shod have vastly different foot morphologies or shapes, which undoubtedly affect balance and functioning. One interesting piece of literature compared barefoot Indians, shod Indians, and Western Caucasians. In spite of the barefoot group having slightly shorter feet compared to the other group with the Caucasians, they had by far wider feet in comparison, and especially in relationship to their stature. With larger feet, this offered more surface area to spread the weight of the body, reducing what the authors referred to as peak pressure, or rather one part of the foot doing the lion's share of the work or taking the brunt of your body weight. To combine data from these last two pieces to make another point, wider feet means having more room to balance. This means as we age, our feet are supposed to become wider, which in turn would help provide balance in our later years which just so happens to be when we're more prone to falling, at least the way our culture has demonstrated. This means conventional shoes are a one-two punch to older populations, as they have prevented feet from widening throughout their life, which gives them the edge and balance, but also suppresses the pressure information being detected by the feet, making it increasingly easier to lose balance. Now, I think I've presented enough data and arguing points to say that a minimal shoe is a more, quote, natural way to allow our feet to operate. And I'm not going to get started on how heels and narrow toe boxes for fashionable shoes can cause damage.
I'm fairly confident I'll have an army of supporters that agree that those shoes are not comfortable and come with bunions, Achilles and calf issues, and toes growing sideways that they would back me up on that statement. This does not, however, make me a full proponent of barefoot or minimal shoes. So I won't encourage you to go out and buy one and wear them immediately and suddenly reap the benefits that they can provide. These shoes should very much be treated like exercise. You do not jump straight in and try a brand new workout as hard and as fast as you can. Minimal shoes have gotten people injured, and not necessarily because shoes were bad, but because they may have been bad for that person. It is impossible to account for all of the fun, unique intricacies that people can present unless doing a one-on-one consultation with each person first. And each of those recommendations would be unique. Science has started looking into protocols on how to safely transition from conventional shoes to minimal footwear. And to nobody's surprise, there is no one general consensus because there are so many things to consider. How you have run in the past, and apparently there are many ways to run and not many are great, can affect your ability and how you transition shoes. The shoe and previous running method may require you to do a specific soft tissue or injury prevention protocol that is different from someone else transitioning. You may very well need gait retraining, aka a running coach, to relearn how to run. We take for granted that most of us have been running since we were children, but if there was interference during that natural learning period in our childhood, (coughs) shoes, (coughs) then we may have learned wrong and have lots of motor patterns that are going to need retraining under the watch of a careful and learned eye. For those with no pursuit to run and just want to improve their foot health, and generally where anyone should start before even considering running in minimal shoes, is to make wearing the shoes like an exercise. Do sets and reps. In this case, wear the minimal shoes until your feet feel tired, just like an exercise. At that point, swap back to your old shoes and give your feet a breather. When they feel better, rotate the minimals back in. The muscles in your feet are literally doing work just as you would in exercise. And so you will need exposure to stimulus and rest to allow time to recover and get adaptations. This could take weeks or months, but the period of time you are able to wear the shoes should be gradually increasing. You don't start learning how to do pull-ups and then try to do 100 in your first session. That's how you get hurt. Trying to wear a brand new pair of minimal shoes with no experience in being barefoot for extended periods of time is a great way to get hurt. Even if you are doing it smartly and correctly by doing wearing the shoes in small chunks and giving yourself adequate time to recover, you will likely get sore and or tight. Your foot muscles are no different than your biceps or quads. They can get ropey and tight and full of trigger points that are going to need soft tissue work. They will need adequate and appropriate stretching. See my episode on stretching. To make sure that you don't lose range of motion. Mobility work will become necessary and your body will do a good job telling you it needs it because it will feel uncomfortable when it is not getting the TLC at once. Additionally, working out your feet when you are working out is also a great time to help build foot strength. Not all exercise is conducive to being barefoot, like running and jumping, 
but many that are stationary and loaded are great to explore your foot interaction with the floor, especially the load-bearing exercises. I know many high-end athletes who love to squat and deadlift barefoot, and even the RKC kettlebell course requires you to take your shoes off because of the benefits you get from feeling the floor while swinging a kettlebell. Now, I really feel like I shouldn't have to say this, but I'll cover my assets anyways. Be smart when trying to work out barefoot. Anything that involves your feet moving could mean catching a toe. Going barefoot in a public gym could mean getting some funky gym bacteria on your feet. This advice is typically for those who have the luxury of working out at home or a private or semi-private gym where you know the environment is clean and safe and or you have a knowledgeable coach or trainer who has your back. Please use your best judgment when going barefoot or using minimal shoes, and remember, discretion is the better part of valor. Ooh, okay, so today was a bit of a long one, but there was a lot to say on the topic matter. It is also a very heated field. Some of it can be found with old conventional wisdom clashing with newer science that some would argue is being, quote, fringe. But at this point in time, there is now too much data out there showing the benefits of humans being barefoot. Of course, we have to account for how we've changed our environment around us, concrete, asphalt, tile, hardwood floors, but we still have spaces accessible to us where we can stretch our toes and remember how we're supposed to be. And now we're starting to catch on to the demons that we've created and are trying to undo that with things like minimal shoes, where we can still traverse on these more unnatural surfaces without becoming injured walking on them, while at the same time avoiding some of the pitfalls of conventional shoes. With that said, let's do a recap of all those knowledge nuggets and drive home some of the important points from today. Shoes have been around for almost as long as people, but they have changed as our technology has changed. Shoes began being designed with functions in mind, but over time began to coddle our feet, and apparently too much. Shoes have changed our natural walking running patterns that can lead to certain types of injuries. Even the fastest humans on the planet run with a midfoot, forefoot strike, just as we would if we were barefoot. Data shows that children who were habitually barefoot had less, significantly far less prevalence for lower limb injuries than their shod peers, and the barefoot children were more active in spite of lacking shoes. Our feet have thousands of nerve endings on the bottom that help with balance and are rendered all but blind while wearing heavily cushioned shoes. Older populations that have had a history with falling felt more stable wearing minimal shoes and demonstrated data that they were indeed more stable. Minimal shoes should be respected and not quickly transitioned into. Like exercise, going minimal can mean getting sore and or tight. Doing appropriate mobility work, i.e. soft tissue and stretching, will be in your future. That ought to wrap up our episode today on shoes. Certainly not a comprehensive, all-encompassing conversation, but hopefully there was enough interesting data there to pique your interest on whether you should be incorporating barefoot or minimal footwear into your workout or daily living. If you found this information helpful, please subscribe to our podcast so you can be notified when new episodes arrive. You can also find us on YouTube podcasts. We're always curious to see what you're curious about. So send us your questions, comments, and feedback to info at And as always, 
Strength comes in many forms, from within and without. So be strong to be useful. Take care, everyone, and stay strong.